But we're going to get into God, the gospel of Mark today. Uh, we've been in the book of Galatians for the last two weeks. Uh, we have been really focused on right theology. Mark's going to bring us a whole different kind of thought process. It's going to be about being on mission. It's a journey that we're going to be on for the rest of the summer, probably into the fall, working our way through the gospel of Mark in, in kind of a, a strategy of, of kind of not maybe verse for verse, verse, but trying to kind of break it down in, in some simple things for us to understand what Mark has for us. Mark is the earliest believed written gospel. Mark was written somewhere in the area, they think, 64, 68 AD. Uh, it was after the death of Peter. Uh, it was written, uh, there's debate on this, there, it was written either by a guy named John Mark, uh, or many scholars can't put a name on it. They think it's anonymous, and so they, they say they don't know the name, but many people confirm that this was John Mark. John Mark is somebody that we see in Scripture. He's the nephew of Barnabas. Uh, I love Barnabas, by the way, just so everybody knows, that's, that's on my list of naming children. Barnabas is at the top of my guy's list. It's not so, flown so far, mostly because we've had girls, but it's still there, and I'm going to fight for it if we have another child. Barnabas is a cool name. He's a nephew of Barnabas, and he's a, he's a contemporary of Peter. He's Peter's interpreter. And so John Mark is not a firsthand eyewitness of some of the things that he writes, but the guy that he walks with is Peter. And so this is kind of a big deal. Most people would say that this is the writings and the teachings of Peter that he spoke while he was alive. John Mark would have simply just wrote them down. Now, there's something interesting about Mark. I'm, a, I'm just a history nut when it comes to biblical text. Uh, Mark earliest gospel, it's one of three synoptic gospels. And so maybe you've heard that phrase, synoptic gospel, before. It, it, it's a big phrase that just simply means this. There are three gospels that share great similarities. There's lots of things in common. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. John's its own deal. John's got its own structure to it. Uh, but the three gospels, the, Gnostic, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you were going to put those gospels in, in like a kind of parallel like stories, you would find that they carry a lot of the same stories. And so what many experts believe is that Mark, Mark came along first and that Matthew and Luke used this gospel of Mark to kind of aid them in the writing of their gospel. If you were going to look at, at this kind of level of the words within each book, you would find that 51% of the gospel of Matthew is actually the words of Mark. And 53% of, of the gospel of Matthew is actually Mark's work. And so they use the, these gospels as a template for them to write their gospels. So it's a big deal. Mark's a big deal. And you put that together with the fact that this is centered around a guy named Peter, important book. And so we're going to take some time to study it, to look through it. <clears throat> More than half of the gospel of Mark is devoted to kind of re recounting these remarkable deeds that Jesus Christ did in flesh. No other gospel, no other book spends that much time speaking to the divine nature of Christ. And then Mark is going to do a great job of just humanizing the Son of God so we get to understand him in a human construct. And so today, as we step into this, we are stepping into this whole series with this kind of lens of uh, a servant heart, kingdom mind. I think that these are great attributes of Jesus. I think his life could be described in those simple phrases. He had a servant heart. He had a kingdom mind. And those are things that I think as believers that we have to stretch towards our self. Servant heart, kingdom mind. And so we're going to spend a lot of time studying the life of Jesus in the book of Mark. And one of the things that we have to be careful, especially for me as a teacher and for you who are reading, is to not take these stories and water them down in a way that they just become some sort of moralistic teaching. 
that they just don't become about application, that we get these trendy, nice little sayings that lead us into this kind of different attitude, uh, uh, morals that inform our life. Look, there are great applications to the Bible. There are great applications to the gospel. But we should never elevate good morals over a good God. And so when we look into the gospel of Matthew, it's not a story that's written so you can have a better life. It's a story to tell you how great and awesome and holy our God is. And so we want to balance those two and make sure that we give ourselves uh, great attention to our Father. And I advise you in your readings to make sure that you look in that and understand how cool and awesome our God is. And so let's just jump into the gospel of Mark today. Uh, We're going to start in chapter 1. So in 1989, there was uh, like this two brothers, Bert and John. Bert and John, they lived in Boston. They were a young crew. They started up a t-shirt business. They were not doing very well. They traveled around from city to city. They went to door to door trying to sell these different t-shirts. They went from fair to fair. They were not making good money. In fact, in their words, they were broke and the chicks did not find them cool at all. But in 1994... They stopped traveling, and they went home, and they had to their name, they had $78. To these brothers, the brothers had two, 70, two brothers, $78 to their name in their pocket. They were ready to give up. But at home, they created this stick figure with a crazy grin on its face, and they named that stick figure Jake. And they attached this slogan to this character that was called, it's called Life is Good. Maybe you've heard of this franchise before, Life is Good, but they drained their life savings, $78, and made 48 t-shirts, which that's a, t- that's a cheap t-shirt. I don't know how they got that done. They made 78 t-shirts, or 48 t-shirts, and they went to Cambridge, Mass, and they sold these shirts at a fair. And by noon, they had sold out. And in that moment, a business was born, not just a business, but of movement. Bert and John were no longer just selling clothes anymore. They were selling a mission to spread good vibes and positivity wherever they could. And today, Life is Good is a $150 million corporation. And not only that, it raises millions of dollars for charity, draws people together, and has shaped our contemporary culture with this kind of message of optimism, uh, simplicity, and goodness. And, And my guess would be that many of you probably have a shirt or two in your drawers or a hat in your closet with that slogan on it. I think that there's something unique about those stories that we love. I like to hear those stories. Maybe it's just like these two brothers who did good. They were able to do it. Maybe you like that because maybe you think, well, at least there's a place in our market today for simplicity and quality. But maybe it speaks to a more profound and deeper need inside of all of us. It speaks to a longing that we all have to be a part of something, a work that we love, something that has a positive impact on the world around us. We all want to kind of believe that life is good. We all want to have that belief that war can be meaningful, that we can make a difference in this world. And I think this story speaks to it a little bit. Today, I want to introduce you to another set of brothers, another set of brothers that we find in the gospel of Mark who had this crazy character enter into their life with a message that captured their imagination. And we're going to meet these guys in the beginning of Mark 1. But before that, we're going to set up this encounter by talking about Jesus' first words in public ministry. And so in Mark 1, Jesus says this, okay? He says, now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, that is, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying this, this is what Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
These are the first public words in Jesus' ministry. And so you have to kind of believe, at least I would believe, that he chose those words carefully. And so before we get into the story about these two brothers, let's just make uh, sure that we understand. Let's take some time here to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying in, this, in these verses. He's saying that the time has been filled. The time has come. Like there is a new direction, a new way. Something is about to happen. Something new is about to happen. A different kind of reality. And that reality is called the kingdom of God. And maybe you've heard that phrase before. If you were a first century Jew at this point, if you heard the phrase kingdom of God, what would come to your mind was this great political kingdom. You remember that these Jews were under the oppressive rule of the Romans. They believed and interpreted scripture to believe that there was going to be a king who was much like King David that was going to come in and wipe out all their adversaries, and it was going to be the life is good kind of a mentality. They were going to take away all the people that opposed them. They are going to be this worldly kingdom. This Messiah was going to be the king and reign over them, and it was going to be a great thing, much like they had in King David. And for us today, when we hear this term kingdom of God, I think we think of heaven. At least that's my initial inclination is to think of heaven. That someday all the jerks that I'm surrounded with are going to be gone. I'm going to be in this great kingdom where it's going to be all about Jesus when the new heavens and the new earth are created. Well, the reality is is that we're both wrong. We're both wrong. The kingdom of God is not a time and a place. The kingdom of God is a life. It's a life that is under the rule of God. When Jesus announced that there was a new kingdom of God coming, when it was near, he was announcing that there is a new and better life available, not in some distant future time and place, but now. The gospel is what gives us the kingdom of God. And so just to recap this, because I think kingdom of God is important to understand what it is. The kingdom of God was not a political kingdom on earth. It is not heaven. It is not time and place. It's not a time and place. It is a new life under the rule of God here and now. For all of those by faith, Christ has set a new kingdom in our hearts and our minds that wants to do different, that wants to be about different, a different kingdom than what this world is for. And so how do you enter into that kingdom? Well, Jesus gives us really two words when he talks to to the people here in Mark 1. He says, repent and believe. The word repent is probably a word that you've heard multiple times. Repent simply means to turn away from one thing and turn to another. Often in Scripture, it's kind of tagged with sins. Repent of sins. We hear that a lot. But in this text, Jesus just says, repent. He says, repent. One commentator puts it this way. He doesn't write about repent of sins, which is natural to talk about, but he says that repenting is turning away from what you're doing and embracing wholeheartedly what God is doing. In other words, it means to trade in your old life for the new way of life in Christ. And then he says this word, believe. Believe. To experience the kingdom of God, you have to believe such a life can happen that it's possible, that it's available to you. And the word believe is just an interesting word. It means more than just some sort of intellectual assent where you agree that something is important. You you agree that there's something that is good about that. Maybe you think that believing is just to have like this, uh, I think that that would be good for me. There's benefit to that. But that's not what the word believe 
means. So I want to take some time here to really flesh out this word believe. I'm going to use a a book called Christianity Beyond Belief written by uh, Todd Hunter, and he talks about flying and compares it to belief. So let's just say that you're afraid of flying. Is anybody in here afraid of flying? Beyond, oh, you're afraid, thank you. Nobody, I think everybody's afraid to show them that. It's okay to be afraid of flying. I was afraid of flying. It was a control thing. I couldn't fly the plane. Okay, that was the problem for me. So I had to get over that. And so let's say you're afraid of flying. And so you just, you, you know and you're compelled, like, look, everybody's doing this thing. Everybody's flying. And you're not sure why you're afraid of it, so you're intrigued by it. And so you begin to investigate it. You talk to some people about their flying experience. How was it? Was it good? They tell you all the good experiences they had. You begin to research flying, and you come to the, the knowledge that it's the safest way to travel, actually. And maybe you go to, uh, I'm afraid of flying, a support group. Maybe you go there, and you just kind of put your time in there, ask some profound questions about why sh- I shouldn't be afraid of flying, and they answer them for it. And, and eventually, you get to this place where you feel and believe that flying is safe, and it's effective, and that you should do it. And so what do you do? You go out, and you buy a plane ticket. On your next trip, you head to the airport, you get through security, it's a little bit of a pain, you get through security, and you head to the gate, you head down the jetway, and right before you get on the plane, this moment happens. You see the plane right in front of you, and see all those rivets that hold that plane together. And then you look out that window, and there's always that mechanic working on the plane. Like, what is he working on? My plane should be fixed. Is it broken? And you start to panic, and then you see that gap. There's that gap from the jetway into the plane, and you know that you've got to step over that gap, and you just freak out in that moment, and you say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to do it. I won't do it. I'm not going to fly, and you turn around. You say, no, no mas for me. And so do you really believe that flying is safe? I mean, you understand that it's safe to fly. You may agree that your life may be happier if you would fly, but you're not You don't believe in flying until you're prepared to enter into the plane. You really don't believe until you're ready to enter into the plane. And so in the same way, you really haven't experienced or believe in the gospel of Christ and the good news of Christ until you've entered into its reality, until you've surrendered to God and his rule in your life. Because we can believe until we're blue in the face that it's a good thing, that is important, but until we're willing to surrender our lives and put ourselves under the rule and the reign of God, we will never experience life in the kingdom of God, the life that Christ sacrificed for us, the life that the gospel gives us. We have to experience him as our reality. That's what believing means, that we enter into God as the rule of our life. And so the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth. The time has come. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, something new is about to happen. Good things are, God is establishing the rule in the life of himself in our hearts and our minds. Turn away from your old life and turn towards the new life in Christ. But what does that mean? Like, what does it look like to enter into the kingdom of God? What does it mean to trade your old life in for a new life in the kingdom? Well, I think we're going to see it present in these two brothers here that we find in Mark 1. Uh, Mark, right after the repent and believe, you find this story of Jesus calling his first disciples, and it's there for a reason. 
Uh, I think it's there to illustrate what it means to repent and believe in the good news. And so we're going to read this together. In Mark 1, verses 16, it says this, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. Simon's going to be later named Peter. Maybe you're familiar with Jesus going to name him Peter later when he talks to him at the end of Jesus' life. So Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Now Mark, in his gospel, does not tell us a lot about Simon and Andrew. In John's gospel, we learn that Simon and Andrew are disciples of John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus. But Mark doesn't give us that kind of description. I think Mark is trying to kind of let us feel the drama of a surprising encounter with Jesus in their life. He doesn't tell us much besides the fact that they're fishermen. I think he wants to elevate the sudden impact that Jesus has on their life. I mean, fishermen are a respectable trade at the time. They're not royalty. They're respectable. It's a generally profitable business in the first century in Galilee. I mean, there were plenty of mouths to be fed on the shores of Galilee, lots of fish in the sea. And so it's understandable that these guys, they're not pulpers. They weren't losers. Chances are that they were living a pretty good life, a decent living. They had families. They had home. They probably went bowling on Saturday nights. If you're going to ask them, uh, they, they probably would say that life is good. Life is good. They would have probably had that demeanor. But then Jesus comes into this picture and just interrupts their life. He walks into the work and just surprises them and gives them this invitation. Come and follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. I'm going to send you out to do a different work than what you have right now. And that encounter is surprising on many different accounts. First of all, what's surprising, if we understand like rabbi, Jesus it was called a rabbi. He's a teacher, okay? And, but he's also the son of God. A rabbi and a teacher in this time would, would never have gone about calling their own disciples. If you wanted to follow a teacher or a rabbi, you would man up the courage to go to that person and say, hey, I want to become your student. I want to become your disciple. I want to learn your way. But Jesus just does something completely different. He calls who he wants. And he doesn't pick like royalty or, or anybody that we would maybe esteem within culture. He picks fishermen. He chooses his own disciples. And the second surprising thing in this is that he says, come follow me. He says, come and follow me. He doesn't say, come and store, uh, study the Torah with me. He says, hey, come follow me. Rabbis, teachers would have been tutors in scripture. They would have been uh, they would have been people that you would have come along to, to learn how they interpreted and applied Scripture. He doesn't say, come look at the way that I read Scripture. He says, follow me. And so he's just saying, I don't want you to follow me just to learn my way of reading Scripture. I want you to follow me so you understand the way that I live and who I am. That you would apprentice yourself not to my works, not to my learning, not to my knowledge, but to me. Apprentice yourself to me. And so the first thing that Jesus does is he invites these two into personal relationship with him. Come and follow me. He invites them to be with him, to learn from him, to become like him. Now, there must be something, something really compelling about Jesus. If it says in Scripture that these guys just went, okay, <laughs> where are we going right now? I, I see it. Maybe you watched uh, the movie Forrest Gump. I see it as like Forrest Gump on that boat and Lieutenant Dan's on the pier and he's just 
just jumps out. It says immediately. They went and they followed him. Mark loves this word immediately. You will read it time and time again in the Gospel of Mark. They immediately, swift action, follow Jesus. So something is compelling about these dudes that they're willing to give up their business on their boat and just follow him. Outstanding. And so, look, for many of us, that may have been our reality. Maybe at some point, Jesus into your, in your reality, into your experience as this just this interruption that was caused a huge surprise. There we are, minding your own business, you're doing your work, maybe life was good, maybe life was hard, and Jesus just came along and he interrupted you wherever you're at. Maybe you heard it from a message that you went to church to hear, maybe a friend of yours came into your life and introduced you to Jesus, maybe you just picked up the Bible yourself and began to read it and and learn about Jesus, and at some point you said, I gotta know more about this guy. Who is this man? And at some point you said, I have to follow him. You know, for me, that moment came when I was 17 years old. I was at a Youth for Christ event, Hard Hat Cafe. Yeah, anybody knows that? Okay, Hard Hat Cafe. Just kept going there, and God just kept pursuing me. He kept speaking into my life. And, and I just, who is this guy? And I said, I got to know about this guy. I got to learn about him. And then I said, I need to follow him. Maybe you can think of a moment in your life like that. Maybe it was five months ago, five years ago, 15 years ago. Maybe it was 50 years ago that you said yes to following Jesus. It may have happened subtly. Maybe it happened gradually in your life. You may have been living a a good life. Maybe you were living a hard life. But ever since that time, you've been devoted to knowing who Jesus Christ is. You've been pursuing him and becoming more like him. That's been your mission in life. And listen... That's a great start. That is a great thing, but it's only a start. Because the third surprising thing about this invitation that Jesus gives to Simon and Andrew is that he didn't stop with follow me. He just didn't end it when he said, come and follow me. He went on to say, I'm going to send you out to do a new work. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so he's not just asking him and them, them to follow him. He's asking them to join him. Join him in his work to go out into the world and serve others in his name. This isn't some sort of clever wordplay that Jesus just thought up here. How do I make this word trendy? Oh, I'm going to make you fishers of men because you're fishermen. No, there, that is it's not a trendy. There's a direct connection here between the, the life that they were living and the life that, they were, that Jesus was calling him in, them into. He says, I'm going to take your business, that's your life, fishing, and I'm going to turn it into your mission. I'm going to turn it into your mission. I'm going to take this life that is yours, that is pretty good, and I'm going to turn it into a purposeful life. I want you to follow me, not just for your own sake, but for the sake of others. And so if we have that in mind, let's have that in mind. Let's bring back in this word, repent that we talked about earlier. What is Jesus asking these two brothers to repent of? I mean, we don't have much to go on here in the story. I mean, for what we know about Simon and Andrew, they're pretty decent guys. They would have been about trying to pursue uh, spiritual things. They would have been about trying to pursue what was right and honorable to the Lord. They would have been expecting the Messiah. They would have been family men. They're hard workers. I mean, they're in the boat when Jesus calls them. There's not a lot of things that we see here that we'd say, oh, of course they need. Maybe they're fishermen, maybe they have salty language. 
Right? Maybe he's calling to repent from that. But, but that doesn't seem right. What is he asking them to repent from? Remember, repent means to turn away from one thing to turn to another, to turn away from what you're doing and turn to what God is doing to embrace that. And maybe for Simon and Peter, Jesus wasn't asking them to, him to, them to repent from a life that was so wrong. Maybe he was asking them to repent from a life that was too small. They were worried about operating a business. Jesus was offering them a mission. They were concerned about making a living. Jesus was more concerned about them making a difference. He had something bigger in mind than what they could even dream. These two brothers could not dream what Jesus had in mind, and not, not at all what they would enter into. It was a life that was bigger than just a life that is good on the shores of Galilee. He wanted them to go out and change the world in his name. And so let's think about that ourselves. Let's personalize that for a moment. If Christ were going to walk in in your life today, if he was going to just enter into your life at work, he just surprises you and shows up, that would be awesome. Maybe you're on the way to the pool and he just shows up. Maybe you're at the house and Jesus just interrupts your life. What would he ask you to repent from? What might he be asking you to repent from? Maybe there's some harassing sin in your life that you just cannot get a handle on. Maybe there's a tendency or an attitude or behavior that is not leading into the, into the life that Christ has for you. And if that's the case, the Lord would say from you, turn, friend. You don't serve that need anymore. You aren't a slave to sin. You're a slave to righteousness. You don't need to serve that. You don't have to be in sin. You get to choose Christ because of the atoning work on the cross. Maybe that's what he needs to say to you today. Turn away from your sin and embrace Christ. But for many of us, maybe, maybe it's hard to identify what's going on in our life. Maybe, maybe we've got a pretty good life. Maybe things are pretty good. But maybe we're just following Jesus for our own sake. Maybe we're just following Jesus to serve our own interests rather than the interest of others. You haven't joined him in his work, in his mission. And if that's the case, then maybe this is true. That Jesus wants you to repent not because your life is so wrong, because your life is just too small. You've settled for making a living when you could be making a difference. The commentator, uh, David Garland, he writes this about this passage. He says that the call and the response of these fishermen should shatter our comfortability in a world full of middle-class disciples. Disciples are not simply those who fill the pews at worship, attend an occasional Bible study, or offer to help out in the work of the church now and then. When you are hooked by Jesus, one's whole life and purpose are redefined. They're transformed. That's what it means to repent and believe in the gospel. It means to follow Jesus into a new way of life, to radically reorient your life to the works and the mission of Christ. And until you've done that, you have not walked into the life that the kingdom of God has for you. And so here's the point that I'm trying to make pretty much all day. <laughs> when did we get the idea that we could follow Jesus and not be on mission? When did we get the idea that we could follow Jesus and not be on mission? When did we separate the gospel of going to heaven from the gospel of going out into the world? And so chances are, like, when you met Jesus, like I did, 
It was about you and Christ. Jesus forgave your sins. He dealt with your broken heart. Maybe he, he lifted you out of addiction. He answered your most intriguing, thought-provoking questions about the meaning of life. And you knew that at some day he would take you to heaven. The gospel is certainly a personal gospel about Jesus and you, but it's not the whole gospel. It is not the whole gospel. In fact, Richard Stearns would say it's a gospel with a hole in it. Richard Stearns is the CEO of uh, World Vision. It's a world relief organization. And he tells the story about him leaving this prominent CEO position in a very respected industry to take on and become the CEO of this struggling nonprofit organization that was trying to meet the needs of the poorest in the world. And he said it wasn't a quick decision. He didn't rush into the decision. And he tells this story really honestly. He says this. He says, being a Christian requires much more than just having a personal transforming relationship with God. It also entails a public and transforming relationship with the world. If you have a personal faith in Christ that has no outward expression, then your faith has a hole in it. Jesus didn't say, follow me and I'll take you to heaven. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will send you out into the world. The gospel isn't just about Jesus and me. It's about Jesus and mission. It's about Jesus and others. It's about believing in Jesus for the sake of others. And so listen, over the last two months, we have walked through the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, and we have tried to speak about proper theology, good perspective on what the gospel is, what the law is, what grace is, what Christian freedom is. We want to get right theology. We want to get our brains in the right perspective to understand God. And we've walked in those areas. And all of those things are important. But this isn't a walk that's just about knowledge. The gospel of Mark is going to take us into a different area. It's going to define for us a way, a path, a path that's about following Jesus for the sake of others. Perspective is important, but we can't just have knowledge. We have to have action. We are called to do good. Why? It is what we are created for. It is what you were created for, not to be these personal pleasure seekers, but to serve the world. Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a, the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are created beings, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which we don't get even credit for those good works because God prepared beforehand that we should walk into them. These verses make it clear that you aren't saved by good works, but you were created for good works. Why? Because it's the work of the kingdom. It's what you were made for. It's the work of the kingdom. Jesus didn't just come here and announce, hey guys, something good's going to happen. He demonstrated it. He fed the poor he gave water to the thirsty. He ministered to the poor and the oppressed. He cared for the lonely. He blessed the children. When we do these things, we are the hands and the feet of our God. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. And we need to be about those things because, listen, friends, the world needs that. People are not rejecting Christianity because it's silly and stupid. 
In fact, the world, scholars would say that there's never been a time where there's been so much spirituality in the world ever. Never been a time before. People aren't believing in Christ because it's not believable. People are just tired of hearing about the good news of Christ and seeing no action. They're just tired about hearing the good news and not seeing and feeling the good news of Christ by those of faith in their communities and in the world. We are to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. It is a new way of life. And God is going to compel it to us here in the Gospel of Mark. It is a mission, a calling for us to live by. We surrender our lives to the rule of God and we do His work out of the love and the delight in our hearts for what the Father has done for us. We are servants, servant mindset, kingdom mind. We're not of this world, right? I, I love this. You're citizens of heaven. If you don't, you're citizens of heaven. Who do you belong? You belong to God. What could this world give to you that the Lord is not going to give to you? We're citizens of heaven. Take your citizenship in heaven first. A life that is focused on the kingdom of God. So will we choose to do that kingdom work, that selfless work, or will we choose to lean into a selfish lifestyle about our own needs, about our own desires? And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus Christ just exemplifies it. He models it. And it's going to be a great nourishment for our soul. And so I'm asking that you walk in this with me, Mark 1 and 2, for these next couple weeks, that we would see how Christ has redefined our lives, what he has invited you and I into to come and follow me, and then I'm going to send you out. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. I mean, he is all that we are. It's all what we boast in. We are created beings, as you said. And so, Lord, we just, we just speak to our heart that, that you would convict us, that you would move us from, from being pleasure seekers in our own life that would be about us, that we would, that we would be radically redefined by, by your spirit, Lord, to be people who walk in kingdom living, that we would believe in you, that we would have faith in you for the sake of others, not for the sake of my own self, that we would be selfless and servants with kingdom mindsets and understand our citizenship is with you in heaven, not just here on earth. God, we love you. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in this church. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.